brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America Prospect Podcast today. John Manuel, Matt Eddy, and me, J.J. Cooper. We're going to talk League Top 20s. We only have right now, as we record this, the AZL and the Pioneer League up. So we're not going to go really in-depth into here's why this guy made this list all that. That's what we have the top 20s, we have the chats, we have a lot of stuff for that. What we're going to talk today about, and we like to do this kind of when we get around to league top 20 time, is, is, is we talk a lot about the process and kind of explain how we put this together. And kind of, I, one thing I think that I'm kind of throwing out there that I, I'll even start with a very open-ended question. The league top 20s, or top 10s back then, yeah. go back essentially to when the Baseball America magazine started. You go back to 81, 82. I was looking at the 1983. Yeah, 82 is the first year we did them, and we have them input all the way back to 83. I don't know why we don't have 82. I'll, I'll fix that. But we have all the way back to 83 online. But So nowadays we do the League Top 20s, and that's kind of the start of what we call prospect season that leads us in to the Team Top 10s and the Team Top 30s in the Prospect Handbook. But John, to kind of start this with an open-ended question, why league top 20s? And then if you would explain, because seeing how guys line up, like on an international league list, does not guarantee that that's how they're going to line up come top 100 time. Right. Come, you know, if there's two guys for the same team, they may end up flipping, you know, on the on the team top 10. So what kind of explain that, if you would, to people of why they rank, why we do them, and then why... They may be a little different than what you're going to see in the long-term rankings. I really do. I've actually never asked Alan Simpson or Jim Callis or any BA historians, and obviously Alan was there at the start. He was the only one there at the start. Never asked why we do league top tens. I assume, that after having worked with Alan for 10 years, that the main reason is that he really did, did believe there were fans of individual minor leagues, that there were South Atlantic League fans. And that they wanted to know who the best prospect had been in their league when the year was over. And they, and they didn't just think of it from a team standpoint. And I do think that it does stem from the fact that Allen has a very uh, different perspective on baseball fandom. Because it is so all-encompassing. And I do try to emulate it, for sure, consciously, that I want to be interested in all levels of baseball. And I think that that's where it stems from. And that's why we do it, is that Allen thought Pacific Coast League fans want to know who the best players were in the Pacific Coast League, not just Dodger which, fans want to know the Dodger fan, which I don't know that is true anymore. Which goes back to sporting news, because yeah. the model for Baseball America magazine was the old sporting news. And I say that when I say the old sporting news. There are few people listening to this podcast who probably actually got live at the time the sporting news we're talking about we're not talking about the sporting news 
of the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or we're talking about the 1940s and 50s when it was they called it sporting news it was baseball like it was basically baseball news. it was baseball no news. nascar yet no there was no <laughs> they didn't care you know like i mean they didn't care about anything besides major leagues and the minor leagues but they covered the minor leagues which at the time if you're covering the pcl in 1947 even especially mm-hmm. in the 30s but even in the 40s if you're covering the PCL, the PCL was its own thing. I and mean, again, like right. this stretches back to the sporting news was covering the minors when who won the Southern Association was every bit. If you lived in a you know one of those towns, if you were in the Western League, you know it, who won that league was not a matter of well, the Cardinals did a really good job of stocking our team this year. It was. Our GM and our manager really did a good job of finding a team this year. Yeah, the miners were still slaves to the majors, <clears throat> as uh, Bill James would put it, but yeah. they were maybe the, 80% or 90%, not 100%. Obviously, there were no West Coast teams until the late 50s. Right. Major, right. major league teams. So the PCL right. was essentially so, a, a 4A league. I, I love the league top 20 prospect format, personally. I think one of the advantages is the players are on a more even playing field than they are for the organization. Correct. They're similar ages, similar experience levels. Uh, the evaluators have seen them in a similar context. Maybe this was more true back then, but scouts tend to scout particular leagues That's also or organizations. True. So you're yeah. getting it's it's easier to make these prospect comparisons and perhaps more uh, more relevant. I would actually another thing about so kind of getting into the differences of kind of league top twenty versus a org top thirty, but that that is. Um, that's something that we've blurred a little bit more as the years have gone on, but league context does still matter. How you did in that league a guy who hits matters a buck 80, to an extent. A guy who hits a buck 80 is going to have a hard time ranking at the top of a league. Right. That's right. But, and, but uh, that doesn't disqualify him for an org list necessarily. Right. Correct. Yeah, you're taking a longer view. But I think what you said, the evaluators are a little bit different and the context is different because when you're talking to a scouting director about top 30 or even a pro scout – who just has coverage, and maybe he had full season team coverage, and then he went to Instructs. Just for example, that's how a lot of guys I've talked to over the years have done it. I go to spring training for this club, Instructs for this club, and then I see their full season clubs. Um, I think more organizations are drilling lower, but not all of them. Um, you see, sometimes those guys have seen guys for three years, you know, the same players, and in some ways that's useful, but in some ways those guys get prospect fatigue the same way we do. Ah, oh, this guy still hasn't changed for me, you know. Um, whereas in that league context, well, I saw so and so, and he was the best catcher in this league. He caught and threw and had some offensive ability better. And you're sometimes it's all a matter of whether the guy's focusing on what the guy player can do as opposed to what he can't. So you do get different perspectives, and you get, in my mind, the best part about it is that the managers and coaches that we talk to for the league lists uh, are the best arbiters I know of of makeup. And best mm-hmm. evaluators of makeup that we get. Because uh, I think pro scouts who, even if you have the organization, it's harder for them in a week or two weeks or three weeks of when they see a player to know the makeup than it is for the managers who, if you're in the, uh, if you're in one of these leagues where the schedule is really compressed and you might play a team 12, 15, 18 times, they know those, ma- they get to know the players. They see them before the game, during the game, and sometimes after the game. Um, I, I think that's, for me, that's what I, I focus on a little bit more in these calls 
than I do in the organization top 30 calls. I think that sums it up also. This is the, I mean, to talk about how we do this, we talk to obviously scouts, uh, pro scouts and amateur scouts who have pro coverage for each of these leagues that we do. But the league list is the point in time. The best tools, which we do a couple mm -hmm. of issues before this, and a couple of basically a month and a half before this online, and the league top 20s is where we talk to more managers for this. Like, I do believe that when you get to, it's not that we don't talk to some of them, but when you're talking about the, the team top 30, that's more of a pro scout, uh, amateur scouts with pro coverage, coordinators who have, you know, overall, right. uh, you know, front office execs. That's that. The league lists, you end up talking to a lot of managers, a lot of coaches, and I do think that there is something, it's funny that you, we've all heard it, there is this kind of, there's some of them actually do both. They scout and then they coach and they manage or they yeah. manage in a uh, short season league. But there is always that kind of, that friendly or not so friendly at times rivalry between how scouts see the game and how managers and coaches see the game. Yeah, player development versus scouting, yeah. But... One of the ways that you said that is very valuable of this is, is that a pro scout, a pro scout is, is going to be basing it off of limited looks. Yeah. They don't have any choice. You have the coverage to where if you sit on a, if you sit on a team for six days, five or six days at the start of the year, and come back and sit on them for five and six days at the end of the year. Yeah. Theoretically. That's a luxury. That is. So theoretically, in that case, You'd have had two looks at starting pitchers and ten probably position player games. Mm -hmm. And that's a best case scenario. And if a guy's hurt, yeah. you know, like you may there are guys you're just if you got that coverage, there's guys you're not gonna see. Right. Well, he wasn't here, you know, he was in low A when I saw the high A team, and when I saw low A he'd been promoted to high A. Right. And then he was on the DL when I came back in the second time. So there are guys that you just don't see, and there are other guys who they'll and they'll be honest with you, like uh, look, I saw this guy, he was on fire. When I saw this guy, he was really struggling. Doesn't mean you still can't make, a, you know, assessments off of it. But there is a difference between that and a manager who, admittedly, part of their focus is a little different, less yeah. evaluative, more development-based. But if you're a manager in a league where you saw a team 16 times or 20 times, right. or in the Carolina League sometimes like 24 times, you see a guy play 24 games, you have a different feel for that. If you've seen a pitcher who's faced your team at the start of the season, the middle of the season, and the end of the season, you have a different sense of that guy than a pro scout who may be doing a very good job but sees them for one outing. How much, how much, what's your sense of how much do, how much overlap is there in the evaluation of like a, a manager or a coach versus a scout? Like, do you find that the managers, Talk more about oh he was really young for this league. What do you think the scouts talk about that more? Do you do you find like there's, is it more nuanced than that or is it uh, how granular are the differences between these two evaluations in your experience? I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like the line blurs every year. I, th I think managers are more and more thinking like scouts. Right? I think you're right. You know you, you talk to them and you can you can so is he plus hitter you know what what do you what grade do you project the power to and you will get a scouty answer in, yeah. in most cases i don't know if this is i don't know why this is exactly i but mean i found you, the same thing if you had to theorize why that's the case what would you say 
Um, I hadn't given that thought. The why I haven't given thought to. I was interested to see what you thought because I, I do find that the managers, especially in full season leagues, give me more scouty answers mm-hmm. than they used to. I don't know if that's because of the proliferation of data. Mm-hmm. I presume that's part of it, but I know I was shocked, just like in the AAA championship game. El Paso never plays Scranton, ever. They're in two different leagues. But literally, San Diego ever. And San Diego has no no um, affiliates that are in the same league as the Yankees. Not that I can think of. And yet Matt Ford, is that the guy's name? DH, first baseman. First baseman yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mike Ford. Mike Ford. Mike Ford. Mike Ford comes up, and El Paso freaking shifts. And he hits the ball right to Jose Rondon, the shortstop, right into the teeth of the shift. That just blew me away. And that just tells you the volume of data. It's like Manhattan Change Bank. They've got so volume <laughs> of data that El Paso could shift on a team they've never but, seen. But think about so it. That's, we that's could, but, I, but the, the crazy thing about we that could is... We could do it, too, if we wanted to. That, yeah. Well, I look at spray charts. Right. With I mean, that is that's what I'm saying. Like th- this gets into the process, but it's funny we have these discussions even with kind of younger guys in our office. Like, okay, so what's your process when you're starting and what you're doing? Matt, we'll start with you. What are I mean, you've got your secret charts, and I I kind of <laughs> I, I, I uh, the, to, to, an homage to Jim Callis. That's right. But. But it is something, and I look at your secret charts. I ask you for your, hey, send me, you know, my, you know, let me look at them. But what are some, what are some stats? What are some numbers? Or what are some, maybe it's spray charts. What are some things that you are looking at to basically, because what we all start with is, is, I mean, I start with a list of about 55, 75 names. And hopefully I'll end up yeah. discovering another five to ten right. at the calls. I, but, I, cre- I create a depth chart by position, first of all. I put hmm. everybody who's, could reasonably be considered a prospect <clears throat> by position and look at them that way, giving special consideration to shortstops, catchers, left-handers. Yeah. I would go by team, not by position, but that's interesting. Yeah. I like to see where the league is strong position-wise. And I'll give a plug to MLBFarm.com. We're talking about spray charts. Useful. I use them. You know, they're not, they're not 100% accurate, but they're very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Just to see where, where the hit distributions are. When you know that they're not 100% accurate, every now and then there'll be that weird blip of data it's like the bunt that like looks like yeah. the light location is the wall in center field or <laughs> yeah. you know or or the uh the the, the uh ground you know the grounded you know like you'll say like uh or the line out that's like um how did he line it out to there you know like <laughs> no one can and position there pitch fx data for pitchers who have pitched in the major leagues is crucial i, I use fan graphs mm-hmm. plug um and then from there, yeah, I, do, I, I look at component statistics for batters and pitchers. I like, I like to put them in a uh, percentile rank mm-hmm. to figure out, to, to really contextualize what a walk rate of 10% means, what an isolated slugging. Because it's different one from one league to means. another. Sure is. Yeah, so I, I put those in those to get an idea of where players are strong or weak uh, contextually in the league, in, in their component statistics, not, not looking at like... Not the counting stats. Not the raw overall production. That gives me a good idea of where players, where the strength, their strengths lie. I, I like the depth chart idea, which I've never done. I've never thought to do it that way. This, this works better for full season leagues, caveat. The numbers are not really that important for the short season leagues. See, I, because of the calls <clears throat> I do usually are, I start with the manager calls. I, I go team by team with my prep, and I just usually just try to write down, just, I mean, I just type it out. And usually the way my brain works, if I type it out or write it out, I'll remember 
So I want to have that handy. So I have my prep list of who I'm asking the manager about. My last question to every manager now is, you got anybody who throws 100? Mm. And it's usually like, yeah, I got one or two. <laughs> I mean, that's that, that is the, I, I really, uh, you know, that's I the question. That. That's the question that never would have been asked. We, we've got some of the old ones here. I've got the like 1998 top t- league, top 20, 1999. I'm sorry, never would have asked this. Back what was it? What was it? We were looking at an old thing. Matt and I were looking at an old thing last week, and it was like you know the guy talking is like the 80s baseball, 80s or 90s. And like, yeah, like I mean, you knew like this guy was coming in throwing heat. I mean, it was going to be 92, 93 miles an hour. That was that was when uh, Tim Hudson retired. I tweeted a picture of the College East note that I'd done on him. And Hal Baird saying he's not just some soft tosser up there. He's got power to his sinker. It's six ninety ninety one. It'll be ninety two ninety three at times. And that was a power sinker back then. Now so, again, the radar gun back fifteen then years ago was a yeah, little you know, 19, well, 20, 1997. Okay. That was college senior year. The radar gun picked the ball up a little closer to the plate, so that you know. But I, I've heard I've heard old long time baseball guys tell me no no it's just that the gun's more accurate no they're lying no they're wrong no I just asked is. I asked Jim Cott this the other day and uh there's no old guy in baseball older than Jim Cott I mean Jim Cott who made his big league debut in 1950 freaking nine Art Stewart wow. says uh, I mean but who played yeah, the big played, leagues yeah. hey, 1959 yeah. played in the big leagues and still was playing in 1983 I mean, spans, won a World Series. Essentially spans three generations. Yeah, he won a World Series. The only World Series he played on that he won was 1982, and he was a lefty reliever for the Cardinals and pitched like 75 innings. Put it this way, this dude threw probably 75,000 pitches in his life. And he, I asked him point blank, I said, so do you think guys just throw harder now, or do you think it's the radar guy? He goes, oh, everyone throws much harder. But he said it's because he never threw out of those 75,000 roughly pitches, he never threw one at maximum effort, in his opinion. I think if you ask John Smoltz or somebody who's also recently retired, you'd probably say the same thing. Right. You can, yeah. go, you can go back 20 years. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I, I do, I think there's just so much more, it, and it is so much more of a power game now it, that it becomes almost, it actually is easier to do these lists because you focus so much more easily on power. I think well, back then power stood out more, but power without command or even some power without any control was fairly dismissed 20 years ago, like 1999, and yeah. now it's like, oh, bullpen guy. It still doesn't mind, mind, might not make a top 20 or like top 10, but it'll make it work top 30. Don't you put dudes at the back of your lists who are power on with no command who might be relievers? I mean, I, five I, draft preview. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm serious what I say. The Archimedes Caminero <laughs> principle. I do, think, right, I do think we have reached a point now where when you talk about like the Rule 5 draft, there are... You may fail on it, but there are there is now going to be an almost never-ending supply of power arms where, I mean, same thing for the minor league free agents, a never-ending supply of power arms, and if you sign eight of them, you might get one of them to be Archimedes Camonero. Yeah. And it's like, and the other seven you fail with, and you go, well, you know, whatever. But the reality of it is, is that there are more... 95 plus mile an hour relievers with a second pitch and maybe their control's shaky maybe their deliveries mean that their arm may fall off in six months all these different things but guys who you say okay do i want to take a look at that guy uh, to give an example from this year mauricio cabrero came out the breaks who was homegrown he's not a guy that they went out you know and signed <laughs> say it Matt. say it homegrown homegrown but <laughs> but mauricio cabrera my favorite style of cabrera if you look at his pitch effects 
His fastball averages 100 miles an hour in the major leagues. His wow. average velocity. And he literally, that's wow. if you said, what makes Mauricio Cabrera a big leaguer? That's it. That's really. The ball sinks, too. The ball, it is, he has a nuclear fastball. That's it. Like it's it, it's amazing. It, it does not. It's an amazing. Fashion. He does not. He does not paint. He does not dot. <laughs> He's not he, really a good pitcher. But, he doesn't. But he, he doesn't. Hard. He doesn't mix speeds particularly well. No. But the reality of it is, is that it sounds like Juan Jaime. To be honest with you, He's like a little bit harder but, throwing version of and Juan the, Jaime. And the fastball's better. The yeah. key thing is, is that the fastball's not only, not only is it harder, but but at the same time you'll hear like the adage of. You know what? I don't care if you throw 101. If it's 101 and straight, guys will turn around. Actually, no. There are guys in the big leagues who have trouble turning. Yeah. Go again. Go to Baseball Savant. Put in 101 and up, and look what happens on those pitches. They don't get turned around significantly very often because I don't care who you are. 101 miles an hour does not give you much time to get going and to bring the bat through the zone. It's just the reality of it. It's a power game. I didn't rank. I didn't rank a guy who threw one hundred one in the Florida State League. I can tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't rank him. I, so maybe I should have. Well, Cabrera was in the Southern League. I didn't rank him either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I, I, and one best fastball and the I, best tools balloting. I'm doing this this these time capsules that I you know want to basically write for my in in some ways selfishly for myself for five so years. You're nine nine. No, not nine nine. Nay nay. No, no. What's your daughter's name? May May. May May. Dang it. <laughs> May-May. Dear um, May-May, when you rank prospects here 15 years from now, as an intern, here's how to rank. But but I want to look, but and and on both of the Sally League and the Texas League lists, on the Sally League list, I listed off, here are 10 relievers with 70 fastballs and something else, not, you know, but 70 fastball or better on the 20-day scale, who did not rank. Like, and I know that some of them, Will end up being useful, right, but well, it's like, but you just can't. It's, you can't. I think that's the key. I think seventy fastball is good, but you to be a dominant closer, you need a seventy number two pitch. You need you need the Dylan Patanza's curve or the Chapman slider. And that well, that's a, that's a good philosophical point. What do you do with relievers in 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 these league top twenties? And what do you do with them in the work top thirties? I used We're to have rank, another debate on this. Yeah, I used to rank a reliever every year in whatever top ten I did. I used to stick one in the top ten every year, and I don't know if I I haven't gone back to remember did I miss on these like did I miss someone else who should have been in the top ten at this expense of this person? But I remember thinking, okay, that probably was a decent idea to rank Pat Nishak because he's actually been mm-hmm. what a two time All Star. I don't feel too bad about I Matt's mean, fluky. I don't feel too bad about ranking Pat Nishak's had a fairly long yeah. up and down, but like. Like, if I ranked Brad Ziegler one year in a top 10, I'd feel pretty good about it. Like, I ranked yeah. Alfredo Aceves in a Yankees top 10 one year. I don't feel great about that, but I remember the year after I ranked him, he threw like 100 cromulent innings in the big leagues as a long man slash right. relief pitcher. So, so I, I'm my experience has been, for every Jose Mahares that I've ranked in a top 10, I probably shouldn't have ranked in a top 10, for... For every one of those, I can remember two or three guys that I ranked, and I'm okay that I ranked them. But, so I, I feel like the bullpen is such an important part of the modern game to dismiss relievers as not – they don't pitch enough to be prospects. I feel like they bring more impact in their 60 innings than some guys do. I would love to study this issue. I, I think that the, that's what I was going to ask is, is I think that also if you look at it, one of, the, one of the ways we try to judge this that we've always done, 
And I think it's a nice way to ground it is because there's a lot of debates. I was talking with a, a pro scouting director this week and he said, you know, like the tough thing you always got to figure out is, is, okay, how do you value the guy who's, you know, that guy's going to play in the big leagues, but he's not going to have much impact versus this guy who may never make the majors, but could make impact. That, that's always a debate. Mm-hmm. One of the right. things that comes back to though is, is to try to ground it is, is, okay, if I offered this guy, if I was at this team and I offered this guy for this guy, right. which team would laugh at me? You know, okay, well, that guy probably, you know, like that and guy. look what has been paid and that's for elite relievers say. in trades in the last look couple of years. Elite relievers now. It's hard for me to say. Stinking Andrew Miller got Clint Frazier and who else? There was another player in that trade. That's ben pretty, Heller and. Uh, uh, yeah, Fires, not, Fires and, you know, the, Yeah, like, that's a pretty big. And Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield. Justice Sheffield. And Justice Sheffield. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, come on. A, I mean, Aroldis Chapman, basically, I mean, again, I mean, Glaber. Right. And the, what I'm going to be watching more, more specifically is Glaber Torres versus Addison Russell. Yes. Because that's essentially the Cubs could have had Torres in a couple of years, but they're comfortable with Russell, who they lifted from the athletics. Yeah, I'm comfortable with Russell too, but I mean, I, I see your point. <clears throat> but they traded a guy with potentially 55s and 60s across his card. Correct. Absolutely. That has been the assessment of Glaber Torres the last two years. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think, like, I, I think there was a time. And again, this moves. I feel like that there was a time where, when you talk about ranking teams, you know, team top thirties, we're talking about the handbook. We pretty much had like, you know, we do the BA grades. It was like, okay, we were saying that the equation essentially was closer equals number four starter, roughly right. at that level. And now what I feel like we're going to, and closer is becoming a little bit more renamed into a. Elite reliever because right. Andrew Miller, what Andrew Miller's what Andrew Miller's doing is more valuable than just going out there and you know and pitching the ninth inning right. in a three run game. But when you say elite reliever, I feel like elite reliever because we've seen how you win games in the playoffs. Yeah. Elite reliever is now kind of equated <laughs> more with a number three star. I would still wouldn't say it's a number two. Oh right, but it's, oh, I yeah. think it's a number three starter I equals when we're, when we're in terms of. Taking it backward and looking at prospects, though, I think my cursory research indicates that most of the best relievers in the major leagues are failed starters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who, who ranked as starters or, in the top tens. Yes, guys who just didn't have the command to start or, or, the, or the stamina or the control. Yeah. I think that's still true, yes. Or they were college relievers. There's very few instances of, of, of high school or Latin players who were strictly relievers in the minors and who went on to become dominant the, Major league relievers. The relievers I can think of who I did rank in top tens um, fit into your two buckets. The guys I mentioned before, Nijak was a college reliever. Mm-hmm. Aceves was a failed starter. Mark Melanson is probably the best college dude reliever. I ever ranked. He was a college reliever. And there, there made, are college reliever exceptions, for sure. He has made six, no, 500. Juco. Right. Juco kind of straddles the line. 585 mm. career professional appearances for Mark Melanson out of the bullpen. But the, and, and he had Tommy John surgery, too, and I knew it was in There's needed. great examples, you know, Zach Britton and Jerry's Familia. Two yeah. guys with great sinkers, yeah. but not great command and not great secondaries. Right. You know, they, they, they can get 50 are, saves. That's right. And not just that. I mean, like, Britain's, like, an elite. He is the definition to me of an elite reliever because he's yeah. been fairly – he's proven durable the last two years. Of course, let's see if he could do it for more than three years. That's the other – But again, but even, like, when you talk, when you think about it, yeah, I, I agree completely that the, the logic – there's a logic to that, which is, is that the college reliever is a guy who you then draft and say this guy can move quickly. Houston's 
if you have a good arm, because the elite relievers almost without fail are you're you're the the you start with do you have a seventy fastball? Right, no. Just about. Okay, well then, sorry, you're not you're not part of this group. But those guys, if you have a seventy fastball, and you're signed out of Latin America or out of high school, and you go to the pen. There's something frightening. Like generally, what that means is you're probably is that, not going to be an elite reliever. That, well, that means that they looked at you from day one and said, either we're too afraid that you're going to get hurt, or I don't. I don't even really know. Like I can't think of a it's scenario. Like Derek Law. Like Derek Law was a big time guy out of high school, showcase guy, and he also had a big breaking ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if memory serves, he was like 92, 95 back when that was considered a seven, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had a plus breaking ball. But the delivery, I think, early he in his went, career is what made him go to the, to the bullpen. He still got hurt anyway. And he, now and he's, pitching, he's pitching fairly high leverage innings right now for the uh, Giants, who are another repository of these kind of guys. Hunter Strickland, another perfect one, example. Another one pitcher for better. Plana, Bruce Bochy's Yeah, But then they also have the guy who's the exception that kind of proves the rule you're talking about, and that's Sergio Romo. It's like a 70 slider, but there's no 7 fastball. But, but again, even with those guys, though, we're getting Sergio Romo's a, a Juco guy, right? Yeah, no, Division two, Division Mesa two. State, 32nd col- round But pick. a college guy. Uh, Derek Law was, you know, Juco. was a Juco guy. I mean, again, high school arm, if you sign out of high school, because they're going to have to pay you generally to sign right. out of high school, you're going to start, and you're going to essentially, at some point, they may move you. I mean, but how, interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. how many big league closers or high school guys who didn't start in the minor leagues I would, for very long? I get. I have before I, we sit there look at. I would, head, say, not very I would say the answer is zero. Yeah. Like I would say that there's no such. There's not a. Again, we haven't studied it as we uh, do this off the top of head. I would say there's not one closer who was drafted out of high school who never started. I might take happen. it even a step further. Like even a good setup guy or just somebody who ranks high in WAR or something. Yeah. Again, these elite relievers. I mean, when you look not at not even yeah. I'm just looking at this. I remember talking about closers. this with Clint Longenecker a couple of years ago about Kyle Crick in particular. Interesting. You know, like why reason why the Giants like were resisting Crick. moving him to the bullpen, and I think this is why. You know, I'm looking at this year. Everyone <clears throat> with 35 saves. They did enough. move him to the pen with Crick. The rough thing with Crick was when they moved him to the pen. You know, we we generally think of you move to the pen and the stuff picks up, but his <laughs> stuff did not pick up out of the pen. Like, I mean, it it did not. It just did not. And all of these guys who are 35 saves and up in the big leagues this year are all either failed starters or there's the occasional conversion joker or there's a college guy like Ramos, Melanson, yeah. Kenley Jansen being the conversion guy, Daniel Robertson, college joker, yeah. um, Sam Dyson, same thing, college joker. and failed starter. So um, And injury history, which is often right. in these cases. Let's take a few he's questions. A, we have, he's we have, a hybrid failure joker. That's right, exactly. We got a lot of uh, interesting uh, Twitter uh, questions, including one from uh, former B, from BA alum Josh Leventhal wants to know: Do we have any personal highlights, low, late, low, low lights of ranking after so many years of doing this? Let's go there. <laughs> I'm just going to say it's the recent one that's fresh that kills me. It's the same thing: starter reliever. Carl Edwards Jr. just sticks in my craw hmm. that I talked to two people who saw him late in the Florida State League. I didn't rank him this way. I did my own personal top 100, but I had him. I thought he was going to be better than Noah Syndergaard because I had questions about Noah Syndergaard's mm. breaking ball. And Edwards had at that time, I thought, a more hmm. complete palette of pitchers, pitches and that his fastball was impossible to elevate. I was all about Carl Edwards Jr. I was totally wrong about him versus Syndergaard. So. And I even just said it in a chat, not in a ranking. But I still regret it to my to this day. I just should have dug. I remember just 
could not get Phil Regan to call me back when he was at Florida at, at uh, the Florida State League that year. And if I just, I bet if I talked to the vulture, I'd have been on the Syndergaard train, and I was not, and I just, I regret it. So I've said that before. I'll say it again. I like that one. I, I got one. <laughs> while you're thinking, I for me, first year. You know, first year I was here that I got to do one. I, I arrived, was the Eastern League. I think it would have been the, I think it would have been the 03 Eastern League. Because I got here in September of 02. And I was like, no, 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 you know, you don't get entrusted with something like <laughs> right. that right away. Mm-hmm. So, sep- Eastern League 03, which was a very catcher heavy league that year. Joe Maurer, um, Mike Jacobs, right? Mike Jacobs, <laughs> Dinier Navarro. And what? The guns of Navarro. But what stood out to me, again, it's, it's just something that was a lesson. <laughs> And I've gotten to where now, it doesn't necessarily make mean a guy's going to make a league top 20, but I really do feel like catcher is the position. Like Dinier Navarro. Dinier Navarro. Catcher stats. Dinier Navarro has, in some ways, you could argue that was a dis, you know, he was a top 20 guy for that year. And it's like, oh, he's a disappointment. He also was the number one prospect in the Yankee system for yes. that year. But what it does show, though, is just what the bar is to be a big league catcher. Like, Dinier Navarro is going to retire with many more games played. It's over 1,000 big league games now. By his own island. I mean, (laughs) but a thousand over 1,000 big league games played. And if you said, if you took a guy with that profile and made him an outfielder, he'd have, you know, he'd have flamed out after 300. You mean 250, 309, 371? You mean that profile? Um, I have one that comes to mind. I want to preface it first by my introduction to the organization top 30s came via the Padres okay. of, of the 2006, <laughs> 7, 8, 9 era. Oof. Oof. The, the, fir- the first one I worked on, I, I had um, Cedric Hunter ranked number one. Woof indeed. Not a number one prospect. Still, has he played the majors? I think the answer yeah, is... Yeah, he did get there. He with did the get there? He did. That's right. That's September... Or, Opening day, like this year, right? Just a surprise. Actually, it appears the first time he appeared in the major leagues was five plate appearances for the Padres in 2011. Okay. And he's went three for 34 this year for the Phillies. <laughs> this was actually... Don't! This was... At the 28-year-old, his peak age. The minor league free agent tracker was all over him. <laughs> but, uh... But who were your options Yeah, Matt Antonelli was the, the club's first-round pick that year. Yeah. Technically more successful than Hunter. Maybe? I don't know. Matt Antonelli more than Cedric Hunter? I don't think so. Hunter has had accomplished more on the minors, but Antonelli... Antonelli barely played in the big leagues as well. In he 2008, did, but... 57 played appearances. <laughs> I guess the year after Mike Trout was drafted, I had the Angels, and I did not have Mike Trout number one in that system. Yeah, I remember, Can you guys recall who that was? It. it was Hank Conger. It was Hank Conger. There were three people you were discussing. It was Conger, Trout, and I forget the third guy. Ra- they had just drafted Randall Grichuk and Tyler Skaggs. Pat well, Corbin I mean, and yes, Garrett Richards. That was, they had a great, great draft. draft. It's one of the great drafts they had, of all time. They had five guys who went on to become good major league players. Drafted but, right at the top of that draft. But Conger was a switch hitting catcher <clears throat> who had showed power, I believe, in Texas Double League a. that year. Double A, yeah. So I remember, and, and was a dude. He was a guy that we'd liked for a long time. So, um, so in retrospect, that was very bad. I mean, Trout was coming off hitting like 370 from the AZL. Your report on him was glowing, mm-hmm. but I do recall that we really did have serious questions about. Just how much this guy's going to hit for power? For power coming out of right. coming out of New Jersey, but I think we just I, mean, I undersold him as well. I mean, we had him as a number two guy in baseball, and we the prize the prospect, and we undersold him there. I mean, you know, putting him number two, we undersold him. I mean, nobody oh. as much as everybody liked him, even uh, other people who used to work here and other people other rankings. As much as everybody liked him, nobody saw this coming. Nobody. So. 
Because he is, I mean, we're talking... A singular player the 25th in the history of pick, baseball. The 25th pick in his draft, he's the best player in baseball. Yeah, every year. So I mean, yeah, he's... For five years in a row. <laughs> so, I, mean, I think it's safe to say nobody just, I mean, the thing about it is, is what, it goes even beyond. He's not just the best player in baseball, because there's always a best player in baseball. But this is, I would argue, that if it goes in a reasonably non-injury, you know, ruined career... We're talking about the best player probably of our lifetime. Yeah, I don't think there's a question about that, right? And that, that's where he's trending. I mean, you know, you well, him, Barry Bonds, you can, him versus Peak Bonds would be interesting Peak, discussion. Peak Bonds, this <clears throat> is difficult in that because Barry Bonds, obviously, there's things that get into the discussion. But okay, best, I easily best in you take PEDs out of it. I was say pre '93 Bonds or pre '98 Bonds, he's better. Mm-hmm. He's Bonds with a little bit more power. And better and does, defense. And does play center, whereas right. Bonds played left. Right. I mean, his uh, Hall of Fame monitor is is already close to Hall of Fame caliber. <laughs> Hall of Fame monitor on B-Ref is at 84 for batting, likely Hall of Famer approximately 100. Did he turn 25 yet? And he's 25. No, he is 25. He just turned 25 in August. So, I mean, the guy's just, you know, stinking incredible. Uh, a couple other questions that are more about players as opposed to uh, process, if, you, if you'll indulge me. So this question comes from J underscore NYY. wants to know, uh, what are our thoughts on Chance Adams and Jordan Montgomery? Can you see them in New York's rotation next year? And I did just get a chance to see Montgomery you know, for five innings in uh, Memphis, but want to see what you guys thought of, of those guys first. Uh, I, I won't bogart the whole question. I I would say next year's rotation, just knowing how the Yankees do things, probably not, because yeah. I don't I don't think that the Yankees are going to go into the season next year with the plan of either of those guys being in the rotation. I think Montgomery's possible because he did have Triple A time and it was dynamic. I mean, ERA under one uh, in the regular season, he had twenty nine straight scoreless innings, and he is left handed. Um, mm. That's a I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm saying I would expect that I don't, they, I don't think it's likely either. I, I would expect that they would go into the season with him planned to be like their number six or seven starter. Injuries are going to happen. He's going to come up. That's And then Chance Adams, I think, is in a very similar situation. I think Chance Adams it should be a starter long-term, although, again, he's a guy who, if you told me he ended up being a very valuable reliever, going back to his, right. going back to his college role, in essence... Um, I, it wouldn't shock me either, but a great season. I do think, though, I just, again, it's the Yankees. If this was... But this, looking at their 40-man roster right now, they don't have five starters on the 40-man roster right now. I mean, Tanaka... Even, even the ones they do have serious health Tanada, I mean, Sabathia, I forget what his contract status is, but I think there's possibility. I, mean, like you're, you're, like I just Brian, think... Like, Brian Mitchell, uh, Luis Sessa... I think there's room for Montgomery to be in that mix at fourth or fifth starter, like a fifth starter type role, because he does have AAA experience, and it's, it's not his first. He didn't just finish his first full pro season. I do not see it for Chance Adams. So I think Adams has better stuff, but Montgomery is left-handed, six six, has shown some real durability and showed some pitchability the other day. So El Paso is a good AAA lineup. I I, I I know it's not. A great free agent class. Again, I right. think what I think though is is that the Yankees right now, especially with the end of season that they're having the year, it, I, I know you could make the argument that this shows that there is value in actually building from within and not going out and signing free agents. 
I, again, he may beat out a guy, but I just think that they're going to go out and sign to fill out that rotation where there are five vets who are at least penciled in, and again, but some of those at the back end may be beaten out of it. My, my other point would be that I think that this year's season and the way it's gone would make them much less likely to do what you're saying because they did not they they got themselves into a rut signing veterans the last few years and that playing younger players energized their team and made them a much better team. So if it's and it's between Jordan Montgomery and Luis Severino, I think that the way that for a for a rotation spot, the way Joe Girardi loves to have a bullpen, he's more likely to put Severino in a high leverage eighth inning situation and have Jordan Montgomery be a five inning left handed starter than he is Severino be hot, cold, hot, cold as a starter. So I think Montgomery being left handed, I think he's a real factor for their rotation for twenty seventeen. I don't see Adams as one as much, um, just because he he's a little, little bit more. more. He's honestly, he just reminds me of Adam Warren in a lot of ways, and he's not as physical. A little bit better stuff, but a guy who wasn't expected to be a prospect and then kind of became one. But Adam Warren to me is a perfect six starter, long man kind of role. The long man role that everyone thought had gone away, but like now every team's going to have a long man now. Mike Montgomery is so, like, this is my role. Yeah, exactly. So I think Chance Adams might wind up in that role. I like him. I think he might wind up more in that role. Uh, did you want to weigh in on Chance Adams, Jordan Montgomery? There's one other Yankees question that's on here um, because they're the Yankees. Also, Dietrich Enns had a big year, ERA lower in AAA. I, I, I haven't seen Dietrich Enns. I haven't talked to anybody about Dietrich Enns. Do you guys have any Dietrich Enns info? Uh, I talked a little Dietrich Enns on the uh, Grant Paulson uh, show okay. uh, a while back. I think you just summed up, though, like if you said, if I'm saying which – Yankees uh, minor leaguers are do I pencil in? I think Montgomery is there first. I think Holder, who Jonathan Holder, who's up now and has not been great since he came up, but he's coming off of as good a couple of months as you could literally possibly have in the minors. Right, right. Um, I think those guys are ahead of him as far as like okay, who are you going to depend on? Um, Dietrich, I, of course, has a better name. He does, but, 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 but a little though. less stuff too. Yes, <laughs> less stuff. Um, more of a pitchability type of guy. Um, one other question on here that, uh, how do we see Gavin Lux developing in the plate? Has his projection changed? JJ, I know you're not a huge, uh, Wisconsin prep draft guy. And yeah, there were two Wisconsin prep guys who went in the first two rounds, uh, this year. Ben Rortvet and Gavin Lux. And Gavin Lux is, uh, it's for subscribers, it's on, uh, his report is up at baseballamerica.com. Arizona League, uh, top 10 was posted, top 20 posted today. He's in there, so I will let you. I will let the uh, the, the subscriber file, uh, you know, uh, take care of the Gavin Lux development. This projection hasn't changed, but it wouldn't really. How much would you guys be, Matt? You've done rookie leagues. I don't think you have you ever done a rookie or short season league, JJ. Um, Top twenty league. I think I've I may done have it. done the app. You want maybe? I can't even know. I'm usually I'm like Florida State League, Eastern League, yeah. Southern League, Sally League, Texas League. I got to do the IL and the PCL, and I think I'll have uh, I'll, <laughs> all the full season IL, PCL, Cal League, and I'll have a uh, full season bingo. <laughs> but but Matt used to do two uh, rookie leagues at one time. He used to do Appy and Pioneer. Yeah. I've done the I think I've done the Appy. I know I've done the uh, either the Gulf Coast or Arizona or both. And I know I've done Northwest and or New York Penn League too. So uh, I've been here long enough to do a lot of these. Uh, how different is it uh, doing a rookie league, Matt? And kind of going back to our process question. How much did you use to take uh, draft ranking into account? Uh, significantly. Toward the, toward the end of the process, after 
after Ben Badler had improved our international information flow, yeah. <laughs> I started entering uh, just bonus amounts for everybody in the league who I could find one for. That gives you an idea of what the industry thought of them as amateurs. Great start to the prep, absolutely. So I just know I have to ask about all these guys, essentially. Yeah, that's <laughs> creating your prep list. Yeah. The money, you do follow the money, I mm-hmm. think, a lot of times. And that's true in the draft as well. So You, know, you don't have to rank them, but you have to consider them. I mean, and at the same time, I don't, I don't want to um, dismiss... Uh, I don't. I don't really dismiss their performance in full season, in, in a, a half season or a rookie ball, right. like with Brendan Rodgers last year. But it does weigh in. And JJ, you have studied this, and the short version. Have you written this, or are we just talking about no, it internally? It's, 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 it's my big term, long term project. But the short version. I don't want to go through the whole thing, but the short version is: if you don't perform in your first half season, full. and then the first full season afterwards, you're probably not gonna perform. The full season, I think, is much more important. Okay. Like, I, I do think that the, especially when you talk complex leagues and all, like you said, the statistics on those leagues become, in many ways, a lot less predictive. You're so far away. I mean, like when you They're get to almost more noise in a rookie league. But for one, it's also and it's a shorter it's a shorter season. So, being a good month doesn't average out nearly as much. A bad month doesn't get recover. You don't mm-hmm. recover from it as mm-hmm. much. Yeah. I, I, a and, nagging injury. And not only that, but and also that the difference between the level of competition is there's more variance. Yes. To give an example, Alec Hansen. Alec Hansen. Still out right now. Alec Hansen in the, in the Pio was dominant beyond belief. And then he gets to the Sally League, and he, you know it's only a couple of starts, but he was fine. I mean, but right. it wasn't. But he gets to the Sally League, which is not would seemingly be a jump, but not a dramatic jump. No, the jump from the Pioneer League and the level of competition to the South Atlantic League is a very significant one. And the guy, a college guy, may dominate the Pioneer League because he's simply more advanced, yeah, and a, a lot and, and more physical. The guys he's facing. The Pioneer League was a real challenge, Matt, because what you're talking about, where like I say, in the Southern League, everyone's generally pretty much the same level of competition. That's really not true in the, for a couple teams in the Appy League and then for a lot of teams in the Pio. Yeah. Pioneer League is an outlier league. They classify as rookie, but most teams treat them as almost like a short season, uh, like a Penn League equivalent team. Right. They really um, just should have it. And, and, like, and it's also a league where a 350 average is like, oh, you're a year. <laughs> yeah, JJ has a good point. Like, the full season leagues, you know what you're getting. You, these guys are full season caliber players. And if they're not, they get sent back to extended spring. If you're in GCL or, or Arizona, well, there is no league to be demoted to. <laughs> and a lot of these guys are not going to be professionals there, next year. There, there's no league to be demoted to. I mean, like, there's not like that, but, and you have guys who, when you say are working on things, <laughs> the, the 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 scale of difference between the guy you face on Tuesday in a game and the guy you face the pitcher you face on Wednesday is much more dramatic. As again, you have it's a much lower bar to clear to be a starter in the AZL than it is to be a starter in the Midwest League. And so, I think that the the the, the randomness again. I, I I go back to like if you look back when people go, why do you not see four hundred hitters anymore? Why does, you know, why we never have, you know, Honus Wagner must have been so much better than anyone we have now because he used to hit 420. And the reality of this is that you see a normalization. The, the closer right. you get to the big leagues, the less variance you see. When you wonder, well, how do these guys, I mean, why do these guys put up insane numbers like they do in Cuba? It's because yeah. 
when you have a much wider fifteen-year-olds playing in Cuba. <laughs> when you have a much wider spread, I mean, really, it's even true. Like if you say the difference between the KBO and the U.S. Or just just recently, because I know you studied this a little bit, Matt. The difference between twenty-first century major leagues that Ichiro got three thousand hits against, yeah. and ni- late nineteen nineties Japanese baseball, and nineteen sixties, seventies, and early eighties Pete Rose competition. Yeah. Honestly, degree of difficulty. There's an argument to be made there for that each year's degree of difficulty was much higher than, say, Rose in the 70s or maybe 80s. Of course, Rose debuted in a very pitcher-centric era in the 60s. If you subscribe to the theory that, that facing more pitchers is more difficult, which I do, yes, the, the number of unique pitchers faced by batters today is 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 on a... I, I forget the scale, but it, it's a multitude of... You have to study exponents to know what you're talking about. <laughs> My, I think my well, sixth grader starting to do that. Like Pete Rose would face, let's say, 50 pitchers, unique pitchers a year in each row by, by din of bullpen usage and playing inter, interleague is facing hundreds. Wow. Or more, a, more than 100. Yeah, probably more in a month than Rose would face an entire year. I'll verify that and tweet it. But <laughs> I would look forward there, to that. You might want to scratch that from the podcast. But. No, but, no, I'm not scratching nothing. I'm not scratching nothing. I'm scratching but me. No, but not your point the being, I mean, like... like and the other thing that is different now, it's not, again, in the 70s, bullpen usage was, if you had a Raleigh Fingers, a Bruce Suter, those were guys were very valuable, and you would go out and they would pitch the 8th and ninth or whatever, but there is a very vast difference between that, I mean, because it would be the starter for 34, 35, 36, 37 batters faced, and then, the, and then a reliever or two relievers for the yeah. next, and now, I mean... You know, on an 8-man pitching staff. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, and now... You know, the, the funny thing that Down I always... That, that, <laughs> that, is, that is the part of the game, the old game, that does baffle me. Because, and I say this, like, it's funny, they had Randy Hundley the day after the... Uh, the the day after the Cubs clinched it, Randy Hundley was in the booth with the Cubs. And there was... Todd know, Hundley's dad. Todd Hundley's dad. And they, you know, they still call him there the Iron Man. Todd Hundley hasn't caught in the big leagues in 20 years. I'm saying, like, we all know who Todd Hundley is. <laughs> but Randy Hundley caught for the Cubs... Decades ago, and it was known as the Iron Man because there was a year I think it was 155 games, and in essence that year they really didn't have a backup catcher all year. Like in essence, he was their catcher. He caught 160 games in 1968, what? and and played 160 and games. Look at how many other guys they had catch at all that year. Like, but the thing that baffles me is is that you go back to old time baseball. And you go back to the 20s and 30s, and there were guys on the roster like who'd be on the roster all year, and essentially they were the bullpen catcher. They have one other person listed on the roster at all. Well, three other guys listed as catchers at all um, on B-Ref. Randy Bob, nine, nine plate appearances, seven games. John Felsky, four games, who later managed the Phillies, right? Four games, two plate appearances. And Bill Plummer, two games, two plate appearances. Essentially. Were, were these like game two doubleheader catchers? But, I don't know. They, they were good. They were 84 and 78. I mean, the next again, year, was, they were really good. But yeah. the point being, they didn't carry something that no one could even imagine today. Like, who's your backup catcher? Well, we, you know, we think we talk about the Royals and Salvador Perez and Eric Kratz as his backup or whoever. But teams now, yes, they run with limited backups as far as position players. You know, you have the 13-man pitching staff and ever. But there were times not that uh, essentially two generations, three generations ago, where teams literally didn't use their full roster. The, 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 the Cubs in 1969 had ex- almost exactly 100 innings thrown by pitchers 9 through 17 hmm. on their pitching staff. 
So the other 1,354 innings were thrown by their top eight guys, including Fergie Jenkins and Bill Hands, each throwing 300 or more innings. So four, so basically, it was a, so four it was an eight-man pitching staff. Four starters, yeah. four relievers. And that's and and the four and the, and the last of those four relievers, Hank Aguirre, pitched in forty-one games, forty-five innings, and nineteen. That's the way it was, and we liked it. Yeah, exactly. But, but, in my day. But the point being that nowadays it's something where, you know, I know there's a lot of people decry the thirteen-man bullpen, you know, rotate, you know, pitching Including staff and me, all that. Yes. Yes. But the reality of this is that those guys are being. Yeah, it's, well, it's painful for the game, but those guys are being used. They wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work. If, yeah, exactly. if it didn't produce results. Correct. Know. And just to, just to put the Pioneer League and just the league <laughs> get back to that a little league context. So the Pioneer League, the average hitter this year hit 286, 354, 434 slugging. The average player now, in the Pioneer that, League had a 354 uh, on base. Compare that since you have the computer there. Look at the Texas League, which we think of. I, I always have thought of the Texas League. Matt, you study this more than I do. As an offense, it's kind of an outdated notion. It's pretty much it's pretty much similar to the Eastern and Southern. The Texas League is no longer like an an offensive, uh, insane offensive part. But no, it's not. I don't know why that is. But two forty nine, three sixteen, three seventy eight. That's almost Florida State League levels in the Texas League. No one, no one in the Texas League hit three hundred this year. Who qualified? Who qualified for the batting title? Who qualified? Yeah, runs per nine innings. I did this on my Twitter feed. Matt Eddy, BA. most runs per nine innings from any domestic minor league, 6.06 Pioneer League. Uh, Texas, I would have guessed PCL. Texas, to answer your question, was 4.2, which was pretty much the same as the uh, Eastern and Southern. Right. So, we, again, when you, talk about, when you talk about the full season leagues now and you say, where are the insane offensive leagues? It's the Cal League, which will be interesting to see next year. Pioneer League, one, crazy insane. Off the charts, insanity. Six per nine innings. Arizona League, number two, five per nine innings. That's a full run per team per game. Wow. Uh, and then also California's at five, too. Which uh, will change without high desert. Appala- Appalachian League's also at five. Wow. Pacific Coast, four nine. So it's essentially And five. the thing about this talk about Pacific Coast League is, is that it's so Would you care for me to read more stuff? Did yeah, you yes. microphone? Come on, finish. No, I'm just kidding. No. Who, yeah. Go give the other end. So Who's, who was worse? FSL? Florida State? International League this year, 4.05. Four runs per team game. Wow. New York, so basically, New York, Penn, Midwest, Florida State, Southern are all in the same general region. Now, now errors and all play a part of this. You have worse defense and all that. Yes. But, but here's the way to, I mean, if you think about that, it's essentially. Many more free bases. It's, but essentially, the IL versus the Pioneer League, yes. if, they, if the Pioneer League is three-thirds of runs, the IL is two-thirds. I mean, like, you, you, you've cut it by a third. Mm-hmm. That's just something that. I do think even as you look at it, again, that's the key to I, when we say I never got to talk about how I do my process. When I do it, one of the, I'm looking, one of the things I want to look at is, is rates and normalization. I want to look at normalized stats because even though you do this on a regular basis, we've been doing this for years, but I still, I know, carry in my head a little bit of an implicit bias that I think of the Texas League as an offensive league. Hmm. I knew this year it was down. But if you're only comparing them against other Texas leaguers, it doesn't matter. Right. Exactly. It only, yeah. it only, it only when you cross but, leagues. But, we, but when you get to the team, you're doing team yeah, top things and all that. Looking at those normalized, and again, the other thing that I do think gets, we look at it, uh, but it's become more and more important to me through the years is, is when you look at, I, I think it's easy to write off, well, he was 20, I'm going to the Saturday League list. The best hitter in the Sally League this year was a guy, a catcher from the from Delmarva named Yerman Mercedes. Mm-hmm. He was 
He's 23, I think if I remember correctly, turned 24 during the year. He's been released before. He's had some time in indie ball. He's an Oriole. But, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, but, he's an Oriole. But the difference between a 23-year-old <laughs> having... Farmhand. But a difference between a 23-year-old having a great year in the Sally League and a 20-year-old having a great year in the Sally League, or even a good year in the Sally I'm League... I was going to say, or a 17-year-old... The difference between a 17-year-old thriving in the Abbey League or just holding their own, that's a big difference to me. But that's I'll say this, Vlad- though. Like, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. did not hold his own in the Abbey League. He thrived in the Abbey League. Oh, that's, that's to me, makes, that's one of the ones that makes it easy. When you right. have that. But, but even the, if they even, but it, but it, the, the tougher to me is... Oh, is the Abbey League was pretty offensive. But, but the is. tougher is, is that the 21-year-old who has a lot of success in the Abbey League you got to drill deep on that because that's that's often like, okay, right. well, that, that really doesn't mean anything. It could how be much, Brian Dozier or it could be a complete stiff. That's it. How much does that guy have control over that? Is he a college senior who was drafted by the Twins and they don't feel like, oh, we didn't have room for him in low A, That's which is possible. We put him in the Appy League because that's where all of our college guys are. It's likely, yes. Right, exactly. So that's what they did with Brian Dozier. That's what you do. Or is it but, oh, but picking out the Brian Dozier versus the outfielder they drafted? I think it might even be the same year. Who was Appy League MVP that year at a Fresno State? I cannot remember this. Nate state. Roberts? No, no, that was uh, he was at a high point. I forget the other guy's name, but it was or it might have been Ortiz, but no, that's probably right. not it. Brian, I forget his Danny name. Danny Ortiz. Brian Mundell had a great year in Nashville this year. So you ranked him number one, right? Easily, but no MVP but, of the league, right? Yeah, he was record most doubles anyone's <laughs> hit in the in the minors in over fifty years. Yes, but at the same time, my memory is filled. With guys who, especially 21, 22, 23 year olds, who've had great years in Nashville. And that list, again, some of them make it through, but there's a lot of culling that happens between there and the big leagues. Absolutely. Um, let's wrap up with we were supposed to do a little history lesson. Ah. We do have, we, we should say that for the next podcast. We have two other questions. Grant Gilcrease asks which Braves pitching prospect most likely to hit their ceiling? I asked you, J.J. Cooper, because you had a ton of them in the South Atlantic League. Most likely to reach, uh, I would probably say Colby Allard. No, you know what? Likely to reach the ceiling, I would say Mike Soroka. I don't think Soroka is likely to be – There, it's it's very likely there will be another pitcher from that Rome staff who ends up being better than Soroka because they'll have more stuff and they do put it all together. But Mike Soroka – has solid stuff and already really knows what he's doing with it. He's very pitch efficient. He mixes pitches. He does all those things well. Mm-hmm. And so if I say that Mike Soroka has a ceiling as a number three, right? I think he's more likely to reach that because a lot of these other guys you're talking about, Colby Allard, Max Freed, Tuki Toussaint, these are guys who, let's say, it's the ceilings as a two. That is not how I would have answered the question. I don't think that's what he's asking, but I like the way that you answered the question. But so. the likelihood, I mean, but again, if you're saying who's the lowest risk chance to be an ace, that's a lot tougher question. Right. Um, Ozzie Lewis, by the way, was the player I was thinking of. Ozzie Lewis. But that's a lot tougher question to say because it's always difficult to project an ace. And I don't really, to me, like the things that go into projecting an ace, the Braves don't have a guy yet who checks off all those boxes. Right. Because to me... You get a lot more comfortable projecting. It's hard to ever project a guy as a one or two, I think but Ian I want Anderson, double A or I want double A or above right. success. I think Ian Anderson is the one who has who checks the most boxes for front of the rotate highest ceiling. 
in their system, but there's a lot to happen. Is he from upstate New York? Check. He is. That's right. That's right. (laughs) But he'll be the next Chris Carpenter. Understand. Understand. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing is, is that like when you talk about guys you were comfortable doing that with, it's a lot easier if you've had double A success or higher. Or some full A. I'll take full season success. I'll take A ball success. Well, they got a lot but, of guys who had some A-ball success. But. Right, but I'm, not, but, I'm not, but I'm saying, like, I would say dominance, the, not the, success. Their best pitching prospect above Rome is probably Sean Nuko. Mm-hmm. I guess so, unless you want to give them credit for Patrick Weigel. Patrick Weigel finished your double-A. I'm just no, teeing no, up no, J.J. on no Patrick credit. Weigel. No credit. Okay, last question. Zero uh, from, from Beant12, Brent Smith. Where does Eloy Jimenez end up? Does he have top 10 overall potential, or are my blinders on? I'll say again, I do think he has overall potential. I don't know that it's likely to be the, in the top 10 in all of baseball in uh, our 2017 top 100. He played low A. He played low A. He did finish the year in Myrtle Beach for the playoffs. Same with Glenn last year. Still low A. Um, for me, uh, selectivity is an issue for him. And there's this question of, is he going to be a left fielder or a right fielder? He played pretty much left field almost exclusively this year. There's still a lot of mechanical work, it sounds like. With his throwing arm and his arm strength, which has been an issue since he signed. When, when, when's the last? I mean, but I say the low A. When's the last guy we ranked? Byron Buxton. Corner. Okay. The center field to me is a different story. Yeah. Corner outfielder coming out of low A. Right. That's that's hard to crack a top ten. Yeah. I mean, Bryce Harper was playing center field in the minors and right. finished his first full year double A. Yes, this is different. Low class A. Because um, again, the guys I think John's of, concerns are real: defensive value and ability to take a walk every once in a while. I think John are, the, are the big the big hindrances. John oh, Peterson, center fielder. Yeah, Oscar Tavares was a low A, but he was pretty highly ranked. He was pretty highly ranked coming out of he low was corner. A. He was corner. I know they tried to say he was a center fielder, but right. he, but he was a corner. He was a corner guy. That's that was a, a guy who had some defensive issues. And the thing about it is, is I think Oscar Tavares also, though, like when you say he had some defensive issues, but when you say like pure bat, like I like Eloy, but Tavares was. That's a good call. Tavares his. better pure bat and left-handed. left-handed. Doesn't hurt. Yeah. Doesn't hurt at all. Could run a little bit. Yeah, so you're, uh, yeah, moment of science for sure. I mean, like the Oscar Tavares really, I mean, like among prospects who died, he and Nick Aiden are probably the two most prominent prospects I can think of. Yeah. Uh, who died before we got to see what they would be in the big league. Oh, Not Tavares, so. I mean, and I think Tavares is at a, even, you know, with Aidenar, I mean, Tavares was a top, was literally. He was number three two years yeah. in a row, I think. So, um, not as a loss. Uh, a big, oh, Travis Snyder, there's a corner guy that we ranked high, and we were wrong about. Straight corner guy, mm-hmm. number six on the 2009 top 100. Coming out of low A? It would appear to be the case. No, he was in 06 drafts. So oh, 2009. 08. Yeah. Each double A in 08. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. I'm going to guess that I overranked him in an Eastern League that year. Um, but, but again, he, he performed well through double A. But, but again, that's to me like a guy who does it at double A. As a 20 year old at double A, he went 262, 357, 461. And then he had a nice 18 game Syracuse where he hit 344. Also a left handed hitter. But, but again. Correct. To me, that's when I just don't think as a corner, I don't think you can crack the top ten out of low A as a, especially as a guy who may be a left fielder. I you would have to have had such an insane year offensively because yeah. you're you're comparing you're you're battling with and let's be honest, the prospects overall, the top hundred next year, same as we said this year, this year, it's not Chris Bryant's not at the top of this list, yeah. that kind of thing. But the other part of it is is that even with that, you're still you're competing with. 
guys you're competing who, with a lot of short stops. You're competing with <laughs> short stops who've had success at upper levels. That's right. It's going to be really hard. Catchers, it's going to be it's going to be really hard if you're a left fielder who may be able to play right. That's generally not a top ten prospect coming out of low A. Coming out of double A or triple A, you can be that. I would but agree. that would be that you have a two three two to three year track record of being one of the best hitters in the minors. Good way to sum it up. That's good stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I, I thought that was good stuff. Uh, good uh, process pro- podcast. Some specifics. Lots of good questions. Thanks. Uh, if you don't already follow us, looks like a lot of you already do. At JJCoop36 for JJ. At MattEddieBA for Matt Eddie, And I'm at John Manuel BA. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.